The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In Saudi Arabia, particularly under MBS, the abuses have only increased and he's really only become more emboldened over the last few years. You know, I, I do believe that the absence of accountability and justice for past abuses, you know, has emboldened MBS and Saudi authorities. And then there is a deep need for accountability for these abuses uh, along the Saudi-Yemen border and accountability for, for historic abuses as well, because MBS is very young. He's only 38 years old. I think there's every reason to expect that he's going to be in power for many years, if not decades to come. And if the human rights situation in the country has deteriorated so much under such a short period of time in which he's come to power, you know, it's terrifying to think what may be to come in the future. I'm Anna Hickey, Associate Editor of Communications for Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. September 26, 2023. On August 21st, the Human Rights Watch released a report detailing systematic abuses of Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers at the Saudi Arabia-Yemen border. Researchers interviewed dozens of Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers and found that Saudi border guards had used explosive weapons on them and shot migrants at close range. I sat down with Joey Shea, a researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, who investigates human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. We discussed the Human Rights Watch recent report, how the international community has responded so far, and the human rights record of Prince Mohammed bin Salman since he ascended the throne in 2015. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 26, 2023, Human Rights Abuses in Saudi Arabia with Joey Shea. So to begin the conversation today, uh, Joey, can you give a brief overview of what the Human Rights Watch found during its investigation at the Saudi Arabian-Yemen border into the treatment of Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers? Absolutely. So in our report released in August, we found that Saudi border guards were using explosive weapons against Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers attempting to cross the northern Yemeni border into Saudi Arabia. Now, we have documented abuses along this migration route for many years, since 2014. And this route begins um, at the Horn of Africa. So often these migrants will leave from Djibouti, uh, cross the Gulf of Aden, and go up through Yemen to reach the northern border. Um, And as I said, we've been documenting 
preventing violations along this route for many years. And we have long documented issues of arbitrary detention, torture during in detention centers, but never before have we documented abuses at quite such the scale particularly the use of explosive weapons against women and children, shooting at close range. Uh, We documented a horrible example of one migrant being forced to rape another migrant after uh, another migrant had refused to conduct the rape who was then killed by Saudi border guards. And we found that these violations were widespread and systematic. And if these killings were part of a broader Saudi policy to murder migrants, they would constitute a crime against humanity. Was there a precipitating event into beginning the investigation? And over what time period did the investigation look at these acts being taken by Saudi border guards? We had been receiving increasing reports of these abuses, and there had been a preliminary investigation um, that we'd become aware of, and so we decided to take a closer look. But the research began in January 2023 and concluded in June 2023. That's the period in which the interviews um, had taken place, and also during which the digital investigation took place. Um, So the use of satellite imagery to corroborate the claims, as well as hundreds of social media videos um, that we collected. And, you know, to this day, we still receive testimonies and numbers of of migrants that we could possibly interview. Um, But, you know, of course, at some point, the collection of, of data needs to stop and the writing and release needs to begin. Why are Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers headed to Saudi Arabia? Do they see it as more job opportunities there? Are they just fleeing from violence in Ethiopia? What's the kind of cause? So there are a myriad of of factors uh, which cause these migrants to leave uh, and to seek um, opportunities in in Saudi Arabia. Certainly uh, economic motivations are one of them. There are approximately 750,000 Ethiopian migrants um, currently living in Saudi Arabia. Um, So certainly that is a motivating factor. Also, you know, many are fleeing conflict in in Ethiopia as well. And During your investigation into the treatment of these Ethiopian migrants at the Saudi Arabian border, did you find that there was specific areas where it was concentrated or was it just all along the border? Does it seem like there are just certain sectors of the border guards that might be perpetrating this violence, but it's not necessarily systematic? Or does it appear to be a systematic actions taken at that border? We found that the violations were uh, systematic and widespread. We specifically documented two separate migrant camps um, from which the migrants would begin their attempt to cross the border. Um, And we focused our investigation on these two camps and geolocated them and cross-referenced the many photos and videos that we were able to collect, and as well as we documented some burial sites as well that we watched grow over a number of months. And has there been any response from the Saudi Arabian government or the Yemen government or the Ethiopian government about the report uh, since it's come out? 
So we did write to the Saudi Arabian Human Rights Commission, as well as the Ministry of Interior and Defense. Before the release of the report, we outlined our findings and shared with them a number of questions. Unfortunately, we did not receive a response from any Saudi authorities in response to media questions after the report was released. There were a number of comments by uh, sort of unnamed Saudi officials responding to the violations documented in the reports. These responses, you know, mainly said that um, our claims were unfounded and untrue. I actually had a debate with a Saudi analyst who is based in Riyadh, who again said that the Claims were unfounded and untrue when I pressed him for further clarification as to what specific claims they were saying were untrue and the, you know, the basis of, of why they thought they were untrue. They didn't offer any more specifics. So that has been you know, the broad response from Saudi Arabia. The Ethiopian government has said that they will launch an investigation with Saudi authorities into the abuses, but we haven't yet seen any details on what that investigation might entail or whether it is indeed going forward. And has this report been mentioned? I know the UN General Assembly has met after the report came out. Has the report come up in any international conversations around Saudi Arabia? We are hoping that it will. You know, so far there has been some media statements from individual countries expressing concern, um, but we are hoping that the response going forward will be more robust than it than it has been. So now kind of pivoting the conversation just towards the response to the report, has the United States government made any statements about it? Like what countries specifically that you mentioned have talked about this? So we are calling for an independent UN-backed investigation into the crimes and violations that we have documented in this report. And we are hoping that the U.S. and other Western allies you know, will publicly support this investigation uh, and support it in, in various forums like the Human Rights Council, for example. The Human Rights Council session right now is, is ongoing, um, so we don't yet know if that investigation you know, will be supported by the Human Rights Council, but we are indeed hoping. And what would it take for the UN to open up an investigation? Would it just be a general vote or would it be a vote at the Human Rights Council? So there's different um, forums throughout the UN in which this kind of investigation could be sort of housed. The natural forum we feel is the Human Rights Council and it, there would need to be a resolution. Um, and so we are, we're you know, pushing states to support that investigation at the Human Rights Council. So then you're seeking, obviously, an international response. And it seems like the United States government has thus far not addressed it publicly. How has the United States response to or lack of response to this report kind of fit within how the Biden administration has been treating the Saudi Arabian government since taking office in 2021? So as we all know, during the campaign trail, President Biden took a pretty hard stance on Saudi Arabia and promised, you know, that he would make uh, Saudi Arabia into a pariah. And unfortunately, you know, since 
becoming president, we have not seen the the follow up from those promises. Unfortunately, you know, we have failed to see any accountability for the crown prince's role, Mohammed bin Salman, in the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. We have also seen um, a sort of failure of accountability in the context of the war in Yemen um, two years ago. The group of eminent experts, which was an independent body as part of the Human Rights Council, was um, overturned after a successful lobbying effort by the Saudi and UAE governments. Um, So yeah, we've seen on a number of files that Saudi Arabia has wriggled its way out of accountability on a number of crimes. Um, And we, you know, have hoped, we had hopes that the US, you know, would be a leader in helping, you know, to center human rights issues in their relationship with Saudi Arabia. But unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. There are some people who might say that it's not the United States or President Biden's responsibility to hold other countries accountable. It's not in our, you know, either national security interest or just like economic interest. Saudi Arabia is obviously a partner of the United States in the Middle East against countries like Iran. And we rely on them for oil, especially given the uh, Russia-Ukrainian war that has kind of decreased the oil and national natural gas supply globally. So Can you address that perspective of how the United States should be treating and working with Saudi Arabia? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the U.S. and Saudi Saudi Arabia have for decades had a strong security and economic relationship. Um, The U.S. is a major arms supplier to Saudi Arabia. Um, we also know that the United States has, you know, supported and trained um, Saudi border guards in particular. So, for example, uh, and as well, U.S. military personnel are embedded significantly throughout the Saudi security system as well. And, you know, we're hoping that these types of engagements should be a matter of public record and congressional oversight. So, you know, I think that the U.S., you know, needs to recognize that this strong security and economic relationship, you know, has has a role to play in the abuses that MBS and his the authorities underneath him have been committing. In the report, did it have any like, concrete recommendations for the United States on addressing this with Saudi Arabia? Yeah, so I think that, you know, number one, we are calling for an investigation, as I said, um, an independent investigation into the crimes committed. We also feel that uh, any investigation that Saudi says that it is launching itself to investigate these abuses, you know, is completely, completely lacks credibility. And the U.S. should, under no circumstances, support such an initiative that allows Saudi Arabia to investigate itself. And then... In regards to the Biden administration's kind of perspective and current relationship with Saudi Arabia and MBS, do you see any changes since Biden took office in 2021? Or does it seem to be just continuing that same status quo that's been that 40 years of a relationship? Yeah, unfortunately, as I said, you know, we had high hopes that Biden would follow through, you know, on his promises and center human rights in the relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, And unfortunately, that couldn't be farther from what we have seen over the last few years. You know, the notorious fist bump during his trip last summer, you know, certainly we feel led to uh, an, an increase in abuses inside of the country. 
And yeah, just more broadly in in Saudi Arabia, particularly under MBS, the abuses have only increased and he's really only become more emboldened over the last few years. Now, this isn't, you know, to blame this entirely on the Biden administration. That's, of course, completely unfair. But, you know, I, I do believe that the absence of accountability and justice for past abuses, you know, has emboldened MBS and Saudi authorities. And then there is a deep need for accountability for these abuses uh, along the Saudi-Yemen border and accountability for, for historic abuses as well. Because, MBS is very young. He's only 38 years old. I think there's every reason to expect that he's going to be in power for many years, if not decades to come. And if the human rights situation in the country has deteriorated so much under such a short period of time in which he's come to power, you know, it's terrifying to think what may be to come in the future. Um, so yeah, we would hope that US, the US would change and, and, and center human rights in its relationship to, you know, also hope for uh, a Saudi Arabia that, you know, respects the rights of its citizens and citizens everywhere. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You mentioned earlier that the United States has security forces training the Saudi border guards previously had trained the Saudi border guards and then also embedded in the Saudi armed forces. Is there congressional action, like congressional votes that could be taken regarding the use of United States military men and women in Saudi Arabia? Or is that mostly just executive power? Yeah. So just to to clarify, um, for the past eight years, the U.S. Army Security Assistance Command has been trading um, Saudi border guards in a program that concluded in July. And yeah, U.S military personnel are, are also embedded in significantly more roles throughout the Saudi security system than has been previously widely known. And yeah, it's it's unclear, you know, what, if any, congressional oversight there is over this. Uh, and so we are calling for that. And so now to look at, you've mentioned previously that during MBS's rather short time as leader of Saudi Arabia, comparatively to previous leaders, we have seen an increase in human rights violations or abuses. So can you speak to any like specific examples? Because when he took charge, I think a lot of people thought of the liberalization of Saudi Arabia, you know, women could drive. So how has that original perspective shifted as he has remained in power? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely our position that human rights violations and abuses under MBS have gotten worse to a historic degree and appear to continue to be getting worse year by year. So just as an initial example, last August, Selma El-Shihab, who is a Leeds University student, a Saudi, a Saudi citizen who is going who was doing her PhD um, at Leeds University in the UK, she was sentenced to 34 years based off of her Twitter activity, based off of purely her freedom of expression. And at the time, this was an outrageous sentence. It still is to this day. And, you know, we were completely baffled. Unfortunately, this year, nearly a year to the day, we issued another press release statement about a death sentence that was handed out for um, another individual's Twitter activity, or X formerly known as Twitter. So Mohamed El-Ramdi, who is a retired teacher, was sentenced to death based purely off of his Twitter activity. And this, again, is a significant escalation in the kinds of sentences that are being handed down under MBS. Prior to MBS's rise and appointment as crown prince, of course, there were there was arbitrary detention in Saudi Arabia. You know, the prosecution was certainly a tool of repression, but never did we see the kinds of sentences that we have seen under MBS that are clearly getting worse by year. You know, also the abuses that we documented along the border, as I said before, We have been documenting abuses along this route since 2014. There have always been violations, you know, usually torture and ill treatment and arbitrary detention. However, we never documented the mass killings of children with explosive weapons until MBS's time in in power. Um, So, yeah, certainly the narratives of reform are just not accurate. Um, Obviously, MBS has implemented deep social changes. Women can drive. Um, Women are being integrated into the economy much more than they ever were. Um, But at the same time, this has been accompanied by an absolutely astounding level of repression. And as well on, on women's rights, the women's rights activists who had campaigned for years for the right to drive and for an end to discrimination against women in Saudi Arabia, many of them were rounded up, arbitrarily detained, and tortured in prison prior to the end of the driving ban. And as well, so last year, Saudi Arabia issued its personal status law. And again, you know, many of the women who campaigned for years um, for an end to discrimination against women through the personal status law were not consulted on this law before it was issued. It was not made public. Um, No one was able to comment on it. And Human Rights Watch analyzed the law. And we found that the law, you know, simply codifies existing discrimination against women. So... Since MBS has taken power, you've mentioned that we've seen human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia get worse and the violations have increased. Does it seem that there's any specific reason for why this has happened? Has the security situation changed in Saudi Arabia or does it simply seem that the crown prince has implemented these changes simply because he is now in charge? So I think this is a crucial question, and it is important to sort of recognize the difference between, you know, what are reforms 
in general writ large and what are human rights reforms because MBS has certainly undertaken the former. There are, you know, just as an example, now movie theaters across Saudi Arabia where prior to him uh, becoming crown crown prince and coming into power, there were none. Um, Women can drive. There is, you know, a concerted effort to integrate women into the economy in a way that did not exist prior to MBS coming to power. So there have certainly been wide ranging and consequential social reforms in Saudi Arabia. It's absolutely impossible to deny that. But that has also been accompanied by this massive increase in repression that, you know, while Saudi Arabia, you know, never had a stellar record on human rights, really is is a significant departure from the human rights abuses that we were seeing prior to him coming into power. And to answer this question about sort of what has changed, has the security situation gotten worse? Or, you know, is there a, a reason as to why MBS felt that he must undertake such repressive tactics, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say that the singular factor is MBS, you know, rising to power and seemingly, you know, needing to enact these changes from the top down through him, you know, as we've seen with the women's rights activists who campaigned for years, for many of the changes that he himself made, they were arrested and detained. And then MBS himself made the change to allow women to drive. So I think, yeah, the common denominator in all of this is MBS and his consolidation of political security and economic power under himself. And then just to close out the conversation, I wanted to ask about some recent news. It seems that the United States is looking at creating a security agreement with Saudi Arabia, uh, according to news reports since over the fall of 2023. Do you have any comments or perspectives on that, given the ongoing situation that Human Rights Watch reported and that has been occurring over the past few years? Um, so Human Rights Watch has made a number of calls to the U.S. Um, over the years of how you know we f- feel they should be structuring their relationship with Saudi Arabia. You know we've called on the U.S. to sanction MBS, you know, and other officials at the highest level of Saudi Arabia for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. We have also called for an arms embargo on Saudi Arabia, um, given the pattern of indiscriminate and disproportionate airstrikes on civilians and civilian objects in Yemen. Now, the these reports of a possible U.S.-Saudi, you know, security defense pact um, are deeply concerning. You know, we have documented weapons uh, being used against migrants at the Saudi-Yemeni border. Uh, as we talked about earlier, you know, we've also documented weapons, including U.S. weapons, being used in apparent war crimes in Yemen. And so, you know, an increase in the Saudi-U.S. security relationship given this myriad of, of, of war crimes and, and other possible crimes against humanity is deeply concerning. Do you have any final comments on the Human Rights Watch report on the treatment of Ethiopian migrants at the Saudi-Yemen border or on the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia in general? Yeah, absolutely. In addition to our research about Saudi violations against Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers at the border, 
We also have been investigating human rights abuses that are facilitated um, by Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Public Investment Fund, and also um, how the Sovereign Wealth Fund, the PIF, has benefited from Saudi Arabia's human rights abuses. And the PIF has been making absolutely massive investments in the U.S. economy, you know, in key sectors, including technology, media, finance and transportation. And it is deeply concerning, you know, given the extent of Saudi Arabia's abuses and what appears to be, you know, the the very few limits on the ability of the PIF to invest in key sectors of the American economy. So, yeah, I, I think that this also, you know, requires further scrutiny by U.S. Congress. Senator Blumenthal's uh, Senate Subcommittee on Investigations is currently looking into the deal that was made between the PGA Tour and the Public Investment Fund and the implications for U.S. businesses. And so I think that this is also, you know, MBS's consolidation of economic power via the Public Investment Fund is, is another area that necessitates increased scrutiny by the US and you know any other state that is getting the investment from this from this fund which to be perfectly honest is is basically everywhere in the world at this point and yeah i i think it's you know deeply concerning that one individual person uh, in mbs has such an immense degree of economic power um, so the pif is an estimated 700 billion dollars and he has a lot of you know, control over how that is spent and to which purposes it is, you know, invested towards, combined with an immense amount of political and security power that has been consolidated under his watch as well. Thank you so much for joining us today and for your comments and insights. Thank you. It's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is edited by Jen Patria Howell, and your audio engineer for this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.